Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. looking at the second of four encounters that Jesus has with different people in the early stages of the Gospel of John. Uh, He meets people in different situations, in different places, and I would imagine that you're going to find yourself in one of these places. You're going to find yourself in one of these stories or scenarios. And the first one we looked at a couple weeks ago was the story of Nicodemus, a very moral man. We labeled him a moral skeptic, someone who began to doubt their own moralism. And and Nicodemus had gone to Jesus in the middle of the night. He had looked at all of his goodness and all the things he'd tried to do to get right with God and realized that they were not enough. For some of you, you look at that story and you realize that's me. I mean, I am that guy. I'm the person, that woman. I'm the person trying to be a moral person. I'm trying to follow all the rules. I'm trying to be a good person. But if I'm honest, deep down, there's an anxiety because I just don't feel like I'm enough. But what Jesus does in that story is he meets Nicodemus and actually frees the moral person and says, your absolute best isn't good enough. That's actually really freeing news if you're a moral person. It's just your absolute best is not good enough, but something better has been given to you in Jesus. A perfect righteousness that's not your own, that you can be born again by trusting in him and you can have a whole new life. So for some of you, you really resonated with that story. Others of us didn't at all. We looked at that story and it was hard to see ourselves in the middle of that story. You you don't feel like a good person in any way, shape, or form. Years ago when I was in college, um, every college, by the way, has one late night eating spot. You know, ours was called the Purple Onion. And the Purple Onion was this fast food, Mediterranean, greasy, nasty, wonderful little restaurant that was open 24 hours a day. And I would find myself there often in the middle of the night going to Purple Onion. And I had this one friend, Taylor, who would call me, get off work about 1, 1.30. And at least once a week, he'd say, hey, man, are you down to go to the Purple Onion? And the answer was always yes, because it was so good. And so I would go there and I'd get my Euro plate. And it was great. He and I are sitting there over some Euros. We're talking. And we noticed there's someone sitting in the booth next to us who looks really despondent, looks really downtrodden. And I just said, hey, man, like, what's going on? Do you want to come sit with us? And so the man comes and sits with us and he, he scoots into the booth right next to me. And that's an important detail for in a minute. And, uh, and we start talking and I just begin to share the gospel with him. I said, I started laying out the gospel. I said, you know, Jesus can forgive you of your sins. He died for you. He loves you, this and that. And he said, you don't know what I've done. And I'm like, but Jesus can forgive anything. He said, I, I don't think you understand. You don't know what I've done. I said, what could you possibly have done that Jesus couldn't forgive you for? And he said, I've killed more people than I can count on my fingers and toes. And I'm on the inside of the booth. (laughs) And And I look at my friend and I'm thinking, if you leave me and this guy doesn't kill me, I'm gonna kill you. I'm sitting there looking at this man and I just tried to, as passionately as I could, just share the gospel with him and say, it doesn't matter what you've done, Jesus can forgive you. Jesus can love you. And maybe you're not a person in this room this morning who's killed more people than you can count on your fingers and toes, but you feel like a person with a past. And you can say, if you really knew me, you wouldn't love me. 
If, if you really knew my past and what I've done, you would reject me, much less Jesus forgive me. And some of you may have experienced this relationally, that you've opened up to another person. And once you opened up and you shared what you've done or you shared your past or what's happened to you, the relationship changed. There was, a, there was an awkwardness there. Maybe it's been even worse and you've had someone take something that you've shared with them and they use it as a weapon against you. And I pray this morning that you never find that the case here at City on a Hill because you have a group of sinners who've received grace. There's not a single person in this room who's morally superior to the other. I pray that you find grace and mercy and acceptance here at City on a Hill. And so if you're a person who has a past, we're gonna meet a person in John chapter four who you can resonate with. This is the woman at the well, a woman with a past. This is someone who did not go looking for Jesus. This is a person who didn't go looking to be saved. This is a person who did not go looking for a new life, but yet Jesus meets her at the well with grace that she could never imagine. Now, as we see Jesus and the woman meet at the well, the question is, is was this an accident? Was this just a happy circumstance that Jesus and this woman just happened to interact at the same place at the same time and Jesus was able to talk to her? And the re I don't think it is. If you look at chapter four, verse one, read along with me if you have your Bible. It says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, and we saw last week in chapter two, it was actually Jesus, or chapter three, it was actually Jesus' disciples doing it, not him. Verse three, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And attention has increased upon Jesus. His popularity is rising. The public eye is on him. And he's like, I just, it's not time yet. So I want to get away from that. And he goes back home toward Galilee. And we see something fascinating in verse four. It says, and he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. And I want to give you a little bit of background on why that's important, why Samaria is important. Who are the Samaritans? The Samaritans were a group of people who were the products of the Assyrian captivity of Israel. The Assyrians captured Israel in 722 and took away BC and took most of them away to Assyria, but left a select few behind and then took a bunch of Gentiles from around the world and moved them into Israel. And what actually happened is that the leftover Jews and the Gentiles began to intermarry and became a group called the Samaritans because they lived in an area called Samaria. And as the Jews returned several years later, they looked at them and they said, you guys are compromisers. You're half-breeds. You're people who did not uh, follow God's covenant. You intermarried with other people. And so we're going to reject you. You're not our people anymore. And over the years, and we don't have time to unpack all this stuff. I'm a church history nerd. I love this stuff. But there's a lot of animosity. A lot of history between the Samaritans and the Jews. And they, to put it mildly, strongly disliked each other. And so when someone would go from Jerusalem to Galilee, many would go completely around Samaria, completely out of the way. But, and they would even cross the Jordan River, which at that time was, it was a hard thing to do. They would cross the river just so they didn't have to interact with these people. It'd be like saying, I don't like people in Fenway. And if you live in Fenway, I like you. It's not me. I'm just, it's an example. I don't like people in Fenway, so I'm going to completely avoid Boylston Street. In the same way, they wanted to completely avoid Samaria, but it says here that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. It was definitely the fastest way to get to Galilee, so was Jesus in a hurry? No, I don't think Jesus was ever in a hurry. He was, I don't think he was anxious, even if he was urgent. This was intentional. 
Jesus intentionally went to the town of Sychar in verse 5. He intentionally goes to Jacob's well in verse 6. And he intentionally goes for this person, the woman at the well. And the reason is if you look all the way back in chapter 2, and this is the whole thing we've been unpacking the last few weeks, is that Jesus knew all people. He knew everything about this woman. He knew her past. He saw her. He knew every detail of her life. There was nothing that was hidden from him. He saw every shame-inducing fear and failure, and he still went to her. And if you resonate with that this morning, if you resonate with her, know this. Jesus knows everything you've ever done. He knows every detail about your life, and he still wants you. He wants you to be his. And so what we see is that in Jesus, you can be fully known, fully loved, and fully accepted because Jesus is coming after you, and he wants to make you new. And what this does is it inverts the entire idea of who you think gets to come to God. It's the people who need him the most. And so this morning, we want to look at five things that Jesus sees about the woman at the well. And we want to see five things that he sees about us as well. The first thing that Jesus sees is that she is valuable. Jesus sees the value in this woman. We see in verse six that he arrived at about the sixth hour, which would have been noontime in the heat of the day. Jesus arrives. We see here that he's wearied, that he's thirsty. He, he, he needs something to drink. He, he's tired. We see in verse eight, his disciples have gone down to Tasty Burger to get some food. He needs something to drink. And in verse seven, he talks to this woman at the well, a woman from Samaria, came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, everybody in the story, everybody who heard the story, everybody who read the story would have been surprised at Jesus talking to this woman. The disciples, we see all the way, all the way over in verse 27, so when they came back, they marveled that he was talking to this woman, but no one really had the guts to say, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? They were surprised, much less the woman was surprised. Verse 9, she, she's flabbergasted. She said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? In other words, people like you don't associate with people like me. People like you don't associate with people like me. The, the religious elite, if they'd have seen this, would have completely flipped their lid. And there are three reasons why. Number one, as we talked about a minute ago, she's a Samaritan, which would have mean that she would have been considered religiously and ceremonially unclean. And in fact, at the end of verse nine, it says, for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans, which actually does roughly translate to they wouldn't even use their utensils, meaning that Jesus was risking uncleanness by even using the bucket with which she would have taken water out of the well. So she's a Samaritan, Secondly, in that time, she was a woman. In that time, it would have been highly improper for him to engage with a woman in public that he was not married to or related to. And in fact, because she was a Samaritan woman, she was particularly looked down upon. In the Mishnah, which was later sort of writings that explained the law, it'd be a little bit like if you had a commentary for, for the Bible, um, the most extreme Mishnah or, or commentaries on this verse or on Samaritan women was that they were considered perpetually menstruating meaning they were considered perpetually unclean. And then thirdly, she would have been seen as promiscuous. As we see later, she was married at least five times. 
This is a woman who would have been a religious, cultural, and moral outcast, yet Jesus goes to her and asks her for a drink of water. And all of this, all of this being an outcast explains why she would have been at a remote well in the middle of the day. This is a region where there were plenty of wells. In fact, there were plenty of wells that were closer to the city that she could have gone to. And she goes to this well in the middle of the day by herself. Usually women would go in the morning or in the evening, in the cool of the morning or the cool of the evening, and they would go get water because it was just less taxing on your body. It'd be be like my wife every couple of weeks says, hey, I'm going to the thrift store with so-and-so. That's about what we're talking about here. Going in a group of people to a place She wanted to not be seen by anyone. And so it's a surprise to her. She couldn't even fathom that Jesus would ask for water, much less speak to her. This is completely unheard of. So what exactly is Jesus doing? He's dignifying her. He values her. He looks at her as a person when so many others had not looked at her as a person. He asks her for water, basically saying, you can't make me unclean. He speaks with her saying, you matter, you have value. He, he engages her on deep theological topics saying, you have a mind and you're an intelligent person. And he gets personal and he gets to her heart. No matter what you've done, you have value. No matter what you've done, you have worth and dignity because you were made in the image of God and there's nothing that you could possibly do that could take that away or make you less human. It doesn't go away because of your mistakes. And what it actually means, because you're made in the image of God and you find your value in relation to him, is that the greatest way to see that restored is in seeing God himself. That's what Jesus is doing. And he goes after her. And what's interesting is if you look at the story of Nicodemus, Nicodemus, the moral person who thought he had it all together, had to go to Jesus in the middle of the night. He had to go seek out Jesus. But yet we see Jesus seeking out the immoral person that nobody else said he should talk to. And what we see is that both the religious moral person and the irreligious immoral person, Jesus wants them both. No matter what you've done, you matter and Jesus wants you. Jesus values her and he values you, but also Jesus knows that she's wrong. He doesn't leave her in her mess. She's valuable, but there's some things in her life that are wrong. And Jesus presses into those things to make them new. And so as soon as she picks her jaw up off the ground at the fact that Jesus is even talking to her, she begins to engage and think, okay, like, I guess I can help you out here. And in verse 10, Jesus answers her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him that he would have given you living water. She was wrong about who is helping who here. She's not helping Jesus. Jesus is there to help her. If she knew who he was as the son of God and what he offered her, which was eternal life, she would have asked him. And she is thinking on a completely practical level. Verse 11, she says to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. In other words, you only have a bucket and you're saying you can give me something. The well is deep, which again, you're going to need a bucket. And where are you going to get this living water from anyway? You're not in a position to help me. And here's where you begin to see exactly where she's wrong. Verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. That term, our father, is a big key for us to understand what's going on. The Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, 
They only accepted these. So they had a very high opinion of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. This was Jacob's well. And what she's saying by saying our father is, are you telling me that everything that I've ever hoped in is wrong? Are you telling me that everything I've ever trusted in is wrong? If that's the case, you have to be wrong. And Jesus basically tells her, yes. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everything you, who, everyone who drinks of this water, your water, our, your father's water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. If you keep drinking of what you've always drank, you are just going to be thirsty again, and you're going to have to keep coming back again and again. But what I offer you, what I'm going to give you, you'll never thirst again. Now, the woman seems to think she's catching a break. Verse 15, she says to him, sir, give me this water. I, I never want to thirst again. We don't quite get this. I don't know if any of you have ever lived in a place where someone could legitimately, legitimately die from not having enough water. I lived in Arizona for about three years, and I, the first two weeks I was there, I made the mistake of not drinking water for a day, and I thought I was going to die. I had the worst headache I've ever had in my life, this dehydration headache. Now, imagine actually being put in the position where you're going to die. That's the world this woman lives in. She's thinking, man, if I can just get enough water, then I can, you know, I, I'll never thirst again. But then you see something else. She says, I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. I'm never going to have to come back here. Do, do you see what she's saying? The well was the public square. This was the coffee shop. This was the grocery store. This was the office place. This was the middle of downtown crossing, which means if I don't ever have to come back, there's no more shame. There are no more dirty looks. There are no more cutting eyes. There are no more judgmental stares. There are no more hushed tones. She's thinking, if that's what I'm going to get, I'll take it. And we see that Jesus goes in and shows her her real need and shows her what she's been looking for in verse 16. He says to her, go call your husband and come here. Now, at this point, if she wasn't floored before, she's floored now. How does he know? How, do, how does he know? And you could see her face flushing and she's, she's panicking, trying to come up with a scheme to, to cover her past. In verse 17, she doesn't technically lie. She says, I have no husband. She covers her shame, which we're all trying to do. We're all trying to cover our shame by hiding it, ignoring it, pretending. In verse 18 or 17, Jesus says, you're right in saying I have no husband. You've had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. You've had five husbands and now you're living with your boyfriend who doesn't even want to marry you and wants to just simply use you. Jesus gets to the heart with soul crushing accuracy. Now, why does he do this? He's not trying to shame her. You can uncover shame to, to shame someone, but he wants to show her that what she's been looking for has been looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. That she kept platforming a romantic relationship and she just thinks if I just get a new husband, it's gonna fix it. And she keeps running to the same well over and over and over again and she just keeps coming back thirsty. And what Jesus is saying is I want to give you eternal life. I want to give you a water that's going to satisfy you. But here's the key. Jesus has to see you at your worst to do it. There's no hiding before him. 
And we've been trying to do this since the very beginning of the Bible. Adam and Eve, as soon as they sinned, what did they try to do? They tried to cover up with fig leaves. And if you've ever seen a, a painting or a picture of Adam and Eve with fig leaves, it looks a little insufficient, right? In the same way, when we try to hide before God by our performance or our job or our relationship or our false confidence, it's just simply a fig leaf we're putting over that's inadequate to cover our shame. But if you really want your shame dealt with, Jesus has to see it. For him to be the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he has to see what brings you guilt. He has to see what brings you shame. He has to see what makes you afraid so that he can deal with it because he died for it. And what Jesus offers you is so much better. He offers you so much better than a better job. He offers you so much better than any earthly family could ever satisfy. He offers you so much better than enough money in the bank that you could be comfortable till retirement. Whatever you've been running after to make you happy is going to leave you empty, but Jesus is better. Scotty Smith says this prayer in a confession to God. He says, though the details of our stories are different, we often resort to the same foolish strategy, hiding from true love, ignoring your daily mercies, resisting your great compassion. Jesus sees us. He knows what's wrong and wants to give us better. The third thing that Jesus knows about her, and this is going to be a fairly quick note, is that he sees that she's a victim. She's not only wrong, she's also a victim. Now, she's had five husbands. Now, in the Jewish world, this is really abnormal. In the Jewish world, they looked, they looked down upon divorce, and they saw it as an absolute last resort. This was not something that you should do, but it was a resort due to human brokenness, that someone abandoned their relationship, or someone was abusive, or had committed adultery. These were ways that someone could uh, end a marriage, but it was never seen as, as a good outcome. It was always seen as like a death. And so a conservative rabbi would marry somebody up to three times. This woman has found a more liberal rabbi who would do it at least two more times, but she's out of options. She's now living with her boyfriend. Now, I want to make a note about this. She likely does not have legal grounds for a divorce in the ancient world. This is a world that was very patriarchal. The husband had all the rights. She did not have the right to get a divorce, which means that five men used her and left her. Five men who said that she wasn't beautiful enough, she wasn't fun enough. She didn't bring enough to the table. She wasn't satisfying enough. She didn't bring them enough status. And now she's sleeping with a man who will gladly use her so that she has a roof over her head. Sometimes the shame we experience is not even things we've done, but it's things that have been done to you. And, and if that's where you're sitting this morning, I, I just want you to know that Jesus loves you and he's with you. Across this room, there are many who've suffered this kind of suffering at the hands of others, which brings shame. As the Me Too movement uh, came up a couple of years ago and gave voice to women who'd been abused, story after story of women began to share the ways that they had been abused by men and how it honestly had destroyed them. And likely in a room this morning, there are stories like that. And there are even stories of, of, of men who've been abused as boys who were so paralyzed they couldn't even imagine saying something like this. I want you to know this, that like the woman at the well, those memories can, can make us feel stripped of our dignity and value and worth. Know that Jesus wants you and welcomes you and embraces your suffering because you are his and he finds you lovely. Jesus invites her in, history and all. Jesus is a safe place for the broken and the suffering. Jen Pollock Michael says about the woman, she says, what was it about this man that nurtured her small, shriveled seed of hope? 
Why should she ever believe a man again when all they'd ever done was promise lies in exchange of sex? He awakened something sleeping in her, a desire to find herself in the arms of something, someone so deeply satisfying that she could drink in its abundance and nourish the arid places of self-hatred and shame. Something made her begin believing again. It's as if Jesus is saying, come, worship me through the Father. This is where your shame is taken away. This is where guilt is driven away as far as the east is from the west. This is where you see your value and your worth because you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Come and drink the living water and never thirst again. He sees your past. He wants you. He knows you. You are his. Fourthly, Jesus sees that she's a worshiper. She's a worshiper. Now, she shifts the conversation real quick. She's a very intelligent woman. Verse 19, she says, the woman, she says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Let's get this conversation off of me and let's get this back to you. I see that you're a prophet. I see that you know and see things that I could, could never imagine anyone knowing. She's a, she's a very, very smart woman. She knows her scriptures. She says, okay, I see that we're talking about worship as a way to be satisfied but look, we don't, we don't agree on much. We don't agree on how many books there are in the Old Testament. We don't even agree with where we should worship. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Mount Gerizim was a place that Moses said should be protected and honored. But you Jews, you worship in Jerusalem. What this shows us is that this woman and every one of us is a worshiper. Everyone worships. There's no exception. Now, this morning, you may consider yourself uh, the, the most non-religious person in the world. You got dragged here by a family member or a friend, or you just stumbled into here thinking it was a coffee shop or something. I don't know. Like you're, you're here. You could consider yourself the biggest atheist in the world. You still worship. David Foster Wallace, the, the author and storyteller who, as far as I know, never became a Christian before he passed. He said, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. You worship something. She's been worshiping romance. And this is how you know that you're worshiping something. You either idealize it because it's the very thing that's going to make you happy or you become jaded by it because you didn't get what it promised. And this isn't just romance. This can be your job, your family, your life situation, whatever it is. But notice that Jesus doesn't chastise her for worshiping wrongly. He simply redirects it. In verse 21, he says, woman, which is more like ma'am, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You're not going to worship in a place. He says, you, you worship in verse 22, uh, what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. You worship because you were created to worship, but you do so as one who's in the dark. But salvation is coming through the Jews, through this Messiah who's going to come and direct worship towards himself. And in verse 23, we see what he's getting at. He says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. 
You're going to worship in spirit and truth, which means in verse 24 that because God is spirit, you're going to be worshiping God himself directly, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. They're going to worship in relation to God based in the truth, based in something that happened for you in the middle of human history, and this is what Jesus means by the hour is coming and the hour is now here, that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you don't have to worship Jesus in a place. You get to worship Jesus through or worship God through him. You worship God in spirit and in truth through knowing Jesus himself. And she starts to get it. Verse 25, she says to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Through Jesus, you can worship God like this. And here's how you know whether you're worshiping in spirit and truth or not. What are you looking to get out of worship? What are you trying to get? Now, if you worship something else, it's pretty obvious. If you worship your job, it could be status or success or money. But we can even use God as a means to an end. God, I'll worship you if you give me X, Y, or Z. And if the reason we worship is the outcome of what God can give us, we're missing the point of worshiping in spirit and truth. To worship God in spirit and truth is to recognize that the greatest good that we get in worship is God himself. We get a relationship with the God who created us. In his book, God is the Gospel, John Piper said that the greatest goal and blessing of the Gospel is God. You get God himself. So what are you worshiping? Fifthly, Jesus sees her as a witness. She's a witness. Verse 28, skipping down there, we see that she goes and tells, she left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything that I ever did. She leaves her bucket and you see the change in her. She, she leaves the well, a completely different person. There's no more shame. And she goes to the people and there is, there's no more hiding. And she says, this guy knows everything that I ever did. That was her worst fear. If you're a person with the past, your worst fear is that everybody would know what you've done. And this becomes a point of freedom for her. She says, this man knows everything that I ever did and I'm not ashamed. I'm actually freed from it. Could this be the Christ? Could this be the one? The one who saves, the one who takes away shame. And we see verse 30, that they went out of the town and were coming to him. They go to Jesus and they invite him to stay, verses 39 through 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of you, of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. They go to Jesus, he invites them, and this woman with a past has a story to tell. Her story of shame becomes a story of grace. And these are some of the most powerful stories. Tim Keller says, in general, God works the most powerfully in the people who are the most powerless. In general, God loves to show forth his power in the lives of messed up people, the little people, the people who seem so foolish. What if your story of shame could, could become a story of grace that you could tell others? What if that thing that you're ashamed of most, you actually found freedom from in Christ, and it became a story of grace that you could share with other people that they would then find hope in him. They would be drawn to Jesus through you. She led them to believe and they, because she had a story to tell. 
Now, if you're a religious person, you may have a problem and struggle with this story. But the, the disciples definitely do. Verse 27, they're kind of silently judging Jesus because of this. And we see in verses 31 through 38, they're trying to figure out from Jesus, what exactly are you doing here? But I think it's easy for those who've been a Christian a while to forget that whatever God does through you is work you didn't earn, that you didn't reap. But there is great joy when God rescues people, that we get to join God in his rejoicing when sinners come to faith in him. So as we close, I want us to look at what the woman at the well story means for those of you with the past, which by the way is all of us. First of all is that you can be fully known. Jesus knows everything about you. There's nothing to hide. He knows what you've done. He knows what's been done to you, what brings you the greatest shame. And I want you to know that he came for you. He didn't turn away. He wants you and he wants to give you eternal life. Verse 14 it says, the water that I will give him will become a, in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You can be fully known. You can also be fully loved. He doesn't love you, but he loves you because he gave his life for you. He loves you so much. He wants you in his family. And then thirdly, you can fully be used by God. There's grace to enjoy from Jesus and there's a story to tell because of his grace. Let's pray.